Hello and welcome to Habe Papam, episode 180, Urban the Fourth. Dear brothers and sisters, Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis. Annuncio Vobis Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Gaudium Magnum. Habemus Papam. So today's Pope is pretty unique in that he was not a cardinal before his election to the papacy. We've heard a lot about nephews of popes being made cardinals, and we're going to hear more about that in the future. And then they get elected pope as well. And we're going to hear more about that too later on. But today's pope had a much more unique situation. He was born Jacques of Troyes, a small town in northern France, sometime in the 1180s. His father was a well-to-do craftsman, probably a cobbler who made shoes. He had a brother and two sisters, both of whom became nuns and later abbesses of their respected abbeys. Jacques entered the cathedral school at Troyes and then was sent to Paris to continue his studies in canon law and the liberal arts. He was made a canon of the cathedral in Lyon, also in northern France, where he was recognized for his organizational ability and his canon law knowledge. He was recruited from there by the Archbishop of Liege to be the Archdeacon of the Diocese of Liege. And in Liege, he met St. Juliana, who was a Norbertine canonist. St. Juliana actually plays a pretty big role in Jacques' story. She was a very holy woman, religious with a great devotion to the Eucharist. And several times she had a vision of the full moon, but with one dark stripe across the middle, which her spiritual director and she interpreted to mean that there was something lacking in the church. And that thing they determined was a feast day dedicated to the body and blood of Christ. She presented her dreams to her spiritual director, who then asked for the archdeacon Jacques what thoughts he had. And he also asked a couple other learned clerics, and they concluded there was nothing inherently wrong with this devotion, indeed, quite to the contrary. In Liege, there was already a great Eucharistic devotion, but inspired by St. Juliana, the diocese instituted a local feast day, which was called Corpus Christi. And if that sounds familiar, it really should, and you'll know why later in this episode. Jacques attended the First Council of Lyon, and at some point was made a chaplain to the Holy Father, who sent him on a couple of missions to Poland to help bring peace between various parties in Eastern Europe. He was then sent by Pope Innocent IV to Germany to help with the succession of the Holy Roman Empire after the death of Frederick II. Both of these assignments were pretty tough and didn't seem to result in great success, but he was pretty faithful. In 1253, Jacques was chosen to be the Bishop of Verdun thanks to the intercession of Pope Innocent IV, but he didn't stay there long. In two years, Pope Alexander IV made him the Latin Rite Patriarch of Jerusalem. Now, this was a tough job to say the least. If you remember, we had some Latin Rite Crusader kingdoms there, but they were falling apart, and in the ruins, everyone was fighting with everyone else. So he arrived in Acre in June of 1256 on the Mediterranean coast in the Holy Land, And it was basically civil war between the various crusader groups there. The Genoese and the Venetians were fighting. Other groups got dragged in. It was not a great scene. And so Jacques did his best, but by 1261, he had come back to Rome to try and ask for the Pope to help settle some of its disputes that he was having in Jerusalem. So in May of 1261, Jacques is in Viterbo meeting with the Pope. And then the Pope died on May 25th, the feast day of St. Urban I. There were only nine cardinals in the entire church at the time. Alexander IV had not made any new cardinals, and one of them couldn't be there for the conclave, so eight cardinals met in Viterbo. But they were deadlocked for several months between the candidates who wanted more peace with the Ghibelline faction and the Hohestaufen family in Sicily and those who were more opposed to them. Eventually, they decided to try and find someone outside the College of Cardinals since they couldn't make a choice. 
Now, there's a story about this, which is certainly not true, but at the same time, supposedly, they decided to leave it to the Holy Spirit and pick the first cleric who knocked on the door of the room they were deliberating in, which happened to be Jacques. That is almost certainly not the case. Jacques, however, was chosen, probably because he was there in Viterbo, and he took the name Urban IV, since the previous pope had died on St. Urban's feast day. On September 4th, 1261, he was installed as the new pope in Viterbo. Now, as Pope, one of the first things he did was create cardinals. He knew that their nine were way too few, so he made 14 cardinals in the first year of his papacy in two groups of seven. Now, three of his first seven cardinals would eventually become popes, so that's a really great track record. Now, the point of this elevation was to surround himself with capable and active collaborators in order to help govern the church well. One of those cardinals chosen was a Dominican Hugh of St. Cher, who had been a friend of Urban for a long time and would help introduce into Urban Circle the other great Dominican minds. And that blatant foreshadowing means we get to talk about St. Thomas Aquinas. He is such a major figure in the history of theology of the church, and frankly, in the pontificate of Urban IV, and I want to introduce him properly. Thomas of Aquino was the son of a noble family from near Naples. His father, Landolfo, was a minor noble in the service of the Emperor Frederick II, and some of Thomas's older brothers likewise served Frederick II initially. However, when Frederick was excommunicated by Innocent IV, Thomas's brother, Rinaldo, turned against him, and Frederick put him to death in 1246. Thomas was pledged to the church from a young age, and so he was sent to the great abbey Monte Cassino, where eventually it was planned for him to be the abbot. But his desire to follow Christ more radically led Thomas to enter the Dominicans, which were still a very new religious order at the time. This was contrary to the wishes of his family, who then took him and locked him in a tower and tried to change his mind in any number of ways. Eventually, he escaped and he joined the Dominicans and was sent to study in Paris under the tutelage of the German genius St. Albert the Great. St. Thomas rose to prominence in Paris and in in the 1260s, according to some, by direct order of the Pope, was brought back to Italy to serve the Dominican order in and around Rome. St. Thomas found himself serving in Orvieto, a small hilltop town north of Rome in 1261, and at that time it was the home of the papal court. Urban IV never entered Rome. He moved from Viterbo to Orvieto and established his residence there. He had great contact with St. Thomas there in Orvieto. St. Thomas's first volume of the Catena Aurea, which is a collection of biblical commentaries by church fathers, is dedicated to Pope Urban. And in the dedication, St. Thomas writes, To the most holy and reverend father, Lord Urban IV, by divine providence, Pope, I, Brother Thomas of Aquino of the Order of Friars, devoutly and reverently kiss your holy feet. Likewise, Pope Urban requested that St. Thomas write a treatise to help with theological arguments against the Orthodox Church during this time. Now, the reason for this document was doubtless due to Urban's efforts to bring reconciliation between the two churches. In 1261, the Byzantine emperor Michael Paleoglius had reconquered Constantinople from the Latins who had taken it during the Fourth Crusade. And with the reestablishment of the Greek Byzantine Empire in Constantinople, Urban reopened negotiations to bring about a reconciliation. Now, it's providential that Pope Urban was in residence at Orvieto at this time because something incredible happened just down the road in the neighboring town of Bolsena. A priest in 1263 was saying Mass and supposedly began to doubt the reality of the true presence of Christ in the Eucharist. And once the host had been consecrated at his Mass, it began to bleed and the blood stained the corporal. That's the square white linen cloth which is on the altar when a Mass is said. Now, it was supposedly this miracle which sparked Pope Urban 
the desire for a universal feast to celebrate the body and blood of Christ. The Pope had already been present in Liege when St. Juliana's vision impelled the people of Liege to celebrate the local feast in honor of Corpus Christi. And now this second miracle seems to have been the catalyst for Pope Urban to broaden the feast day to the whole church. On August 11th, 1264, in a papal bull, Transitarius, the Pope decreed that the Thursday following Trinity Sunday would henceforth be Corpus Christi. In the bull, he mentions his encounter with St. Juliana, writing, Moreover, we know that while we were constituted in a lesser office, it was divinely revealed to certain Catholics that a feast of this kind should be celebrated generally throughout the Church. Therefore, to strengthen and exalt the Catholic faith, we decree that, besides the daily memory that the Church makes of this sacrament, there be celebrated a more solemn and special annual memorial. Then let the hearts and mouths of all break forth in hymns of saving joy. Then let faith sing, hope dance, charity exalt, devotion applaud, the choir be jubilant, and purity delight. Then let everyone with willing spirit and prompt will come together, laudably fulfilling his duties, celebrating the solemnity of so great a feast. Now, the issue when you have a new feast is that you have to get all new prayers and hymns and a whole liturgy of the hours for the day written. So Pope Urban turned to some of the experts around him. The story goes that he turned to St. Bonaventure and St. Thomas. The two began writing the prayers in the office of the day when Bonaventure asked to read St. Thomas's work. He was so impressed that he promptly threw out his own offering and asked St. Thomas to write it all. And this is where we get the hymns we sing at Eucharistic Adoration and on Holy Thursday, the O Solitaris Hostia, the Pange Lingua Gloriosi, the Sequence of Corpus Christi, the Lauda Sion Salvatore. Now, in the last few episodes, we have been really heavy with Sicilian and imperial politics. And thankfully, this episode, we have less to do on that front and more to do with Corpus Christi, which is awesome. There was a lull in disputes over the title Holy Roman Emperor, partially because Urban deliberately delayed weighing in on the two competing candidates. But there was some movement in Sicily. If you remember, the Hohenstaufen Manfred had ousted his young nephew, Conradine, from Sicily and was working with other anti-papal forces in Italy against the papacy. The response from the papacy had been to try and get someone else to be king of Sicily, someone not associated with the Hohenstaufen side of things. At first, they looked to England, but now with a French pope, they decided to turn for France for help. Pope Urban negotiated with St. Louis to try and get his brother Charles of Anjou to take the throne, and eventually it was agreed upon that the papacy would back Charles if he mounted a campaign in Sicily, so long as he agreed not to seek to be the Holy Roman Emperor as well. Now before we end, one darker spot on Urban's reign is his relationship with the Inquisition. The Inquisition was established to try and root out heresy in areas in the papal states, so those professing to be Catholics were actually believing what they were supposed to believe. Urban created the office of Grand Inquisitor, and he entrusted it to the son of the Roman leader Matteo Orsini, Giovanni Orsini. More on him in future episodes. He likewise authorized Inquisition judges to use torture in their pursuit of heretics. Now, I'm not going to try and spin this one way or another, but we can just leave it here as a black spot on his record. In September of 1294, Pope Urban IV had to leave Orvieto. The Ghibelline, or the anti-papal party, had gained some ground there, and it wasn't considered to be safe. He had started to feel sick in August, so he probably wouldn't have moved if it weren't necessary. He was brought to Assisi, where he got worse, and finally he moved on to Perugia. There he died on Thursday, October 2nd, 1264. A comet had appeared in the sky, according to his biographies, which we know in history as the Great Comet of 1264, and it apparently disappeared from the sky the day he died. He was buried in the cathedral at Perugia, and he was succeeded by Pope Clement IV, and we will talk about him next week. 
Thanks for listening to Abemus Papam. You can check out the rest of the Catholic Bites podcast at catholicbitespodcast.com or find us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Thank you and God bless you.